Good morning, I'm Jason Wren. I'm one of the elders here at Crossroads. So, uh, John Adams was our second president. Thomas Jefferson was our third. They met when they were pretty young, 30s, maybe 40, 1760s, 1770s, revolutionary days. Those guys were obviously crucial to the movement that was going on in this nation. And they became really, really close. They went on some, uh, they were commissioned by the Continental Congress to go overseas together to France and England. They traveled together, their families traveled together. They became about as close as you could possibly become without being family. They got to know each other's children and, and spouses and, and they were the very, very best of friends and partners in that revolutionary work that they were doing. But then the 1790s happened and the country was new, Washington was president, they both served in his administration, Adams as vice president, Jefferson as secretary of state. Political parties formed. I know you guys think it's messy today, it always has been. They found themselves in opposing political parties. They started not liking each other. They found themselves on opposite sides of every single issue it seemed that developed. At some point, Jefferson resigned primarily so that he could run against Adams in 1796. They both ran, Adams won that one. Then came the election of 1800. Jefferson won this time, that was an ugly election. Mudslinging, again, as bad as it is now, we just didn't have Twitter and Facebook and social media and CNN and MSNBC to know about it, but it was awful. And it was essentially a tie, and it went to the House of Representatives, and it took longer than Bush versus Gore to figure out who was gonna be president. And these guys became bitter, bitter enemies. So much so that they went over a decade without speaking to each other. They wrote negative letters about the other one. Their friends wrote negative letters about the other one. Those letters got shared with each other, so they knew what the other one was saying about them. And it was ugly. Now, I knew that they had reconciled during the last 12, 13 years of their life and wrote these letters back and forth to each other and they had this restored affection and this restored friendship. And, and from those letters, we got all these amazing details of history that would have otherwise been lost that came out of this restored friendship with them. So, so I knew about that reconciliation and that restoration but I didn't know until recently, uh, when I was reading about this relationship again, the role that faith and the things of God and this command that Jesus gave us to love our enemies had played in this restored relationship. Because you see, there was a, a third person that was involved in this. And his name was Dr. Benjamin Rush. He was also a revolutionary figure. And during all this time when these two guys hated each other and refused to speak to each other, Benjamin Rush maintained his friendship with both of them. And after Jefferson was no longer president in 1809, Rush, he had a dream, and it was really more of a prophecy. And he wrote this dream down in a letter and he sent it to Adams. And he started describing all of these things that eventually came true over the next couple of decades. Things like the restored friendship between these two individuals. And he predicted these letters that they were gonna to write to each other and the history that would be preserved in those letters. And he talked in this letter of 1809, he talked about the hope 
that would be given to a young nation to see these two rivals find restoration in their friendship, in their relationship. He even described in this 1809 letter, he said that Adams and Jefferson would sink into the grave nearly at the same time, full of years and rich in gratitude and praises of their country, which is exactly what happened on July 4th, 1826, on the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence when Adams and Jefferson died within just a few hours of each other. And Rush had written about that in 1809. But still nothing happened immediately after that letter in 1809. Jefferson and Adams still didn't want to reconcile, but Rush didn't give up. And finally, in 1811, there was a little bit of hope when Jefferson finally showed some interest in reconciling. And so Rush seized that opportunity and he wrote this letter to Adams. And I want you to listen to the things of God that are sprinkled within this letter that Rush wrote. He said, now my dear friend, permit me again to suggest to you to receive the olive branch which has thus been offered to you by the hand of a man who still loves you. Fellow laborers in erecting the great fabric of American independence, fellow sufferers in the calamities and falsehoods of party rage, fellow heirs of the gratitude and affection of posterity, and then listen to this phrase, fellow passengers in a stage that must shortly convey you both into the presence of a judge with whom the forgiveness and love of enemies is the condition of acceptance. Embrace each other. So following that letter, Adams and Jefferson did. They reached out. They restored the affection and the friendship that they had for each other. And, and amazing things came from that restoration in the history that was preserved and, and really having an eternal impact on this young nation. Pray with me for just a second. Lord, thank you so much for your teachings. I pray for your presence here today. And, and I pray that as we talk about this command that Jesus gave us to love our enemies, that you'll reveal to each of us what that means in our lives and show us the impact that it can have on your kingdom and the things of you if we will follow that out. In Jesus' name, amen. So obviously we're going to talk about this command that Jesus gave us, loving our enemies. Happy Father's Day, by the way. Uh, my dad is here. Happy Father's Day, Dad. Uh, the title of this sermon is A Father's Love. So when you see that in the bulletin, you probably think, hey, that sounds like a great Father's Day message. And then I get up here and I start talking about loving your enemies and how do those two really match up. So a, cu a couple weeks before you speak, they email you and ask you for a title so they can put it in the bulletin. And I chose a father's love for three reasons. One, I'm not very creative. So last week, Jonathan, he, he called his a, Pe a Peter's way. He's much more creative than I am. This is the best that I could do. Second, I had to connect this to Father's Day somehow. So father's love seemed appropriate. But third, I actually do have a point. Because I think that Jesus' command to us to love our enemies is a direct result of and directly correlated with the love that God the Father has for each and every one of us. And the fact that he does not give up on us, and therefore his expectation is that we not give up on each other, including our enemies, and regardless of what they've done to us. So I grew up in Texas. I've lived here most of my life. 
but I do not own a cowboy hat. I have one pair of boots that I almost never wear. I do drive a pickup, but that truck has no country music station set in it. Uh, however, I am familiar with a couple of older country and western songs, one of which is a song by George Strait called A Father's Love. So when I was putting this together, I thought, well, maybe I'll sing that for him. And then I decided that none of you would still be in the room if I did that when it was over. So I've got a couple of guys who are willing to help me out with that this morning. I got sent home from school one day with a shiner on my Fighting was against the rules and it didn't matter why When Dad got home I told that story just like I rehearsed And stood there on those trembling knees and waited for the worst He said, let me tell you a secret about a father's love A secret that my daddy said Was just between us He said daddies don't just love their children Every now and then It's a love without end, amen It's a love without end, amen When I became a father in the spring of 81 There was no doubt that stubborn boy Was just like my father's son And when I thought my patience Had been tested to the end I passed my daddy's secret And I passed it on to him I said, let me tell you a secret About a father's love secret that my daddy said was just between us he said daddies don't just love their children every now and then it's a love without end amen it's a love without end amen Last night I dreamed I died and stood outside those pearly gates When suddenly I realized there must be some mistake If they know not the things I've done they'll never let me in Then somewhere from the other side I heard these words again They said let me tell you a secret about a father's love A secret that my daddy said Was just between us You see, daddies don't just love their children Every now and then It's a love without end, amen It's a love without end, amen Thank you guys. Promise that was much better than I could have done it. I think in that song he does a great job of capturing what God the Father's love is for us. It is a love without end. 
I was fortunate enough to have a dad and a mom where I never had to question that growing up, and I, I do my very best to know, to make sure my children know that my love for them with, is without end as well. But I know all of you in this room did not have that from your earthly fathers. I hope what you hear today is a message about a father in heaven who does feel that way about you. So much so that he wants us to love everybody, including our enemies, the way he loves us. And I think that that's why Jesus gave us this command, because of that kind of love, that love without end. Not just every now and then, not just when we deserve it, not just when our enemies deserve it, but without end. And he expects the same from us in dealing with each other. So let's look at exactly what Jesus said about this. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. Luke tells us the same thing in a little different way. But to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Give to anyone who asks, and when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. If you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get any credit? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full return. Love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great, and you will be truly acting as children of the Most High, for he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate, just as your Father is compassionate. So here's my experience personally with this topic. I think this might be the most unreasonable thing that Jesus said. All right? I don't like it. And that's saying something because Jesus said things like, eat my flesh and drink my blood, hate your father and mother, sell all your possessions and give your money to the poor. So my tendencies, I, I want to be right. I want to stand up for the things that I believe in. And, and when I encounter these difficult situations and these difficult people, it's a whole lot easier for me to say, I'm out, life's too short, I've got other friends, I don't need these, and just move on. I started working on this a few weeks ago when I was reading more about the relationship between Jefferson and Adams. I did not expect this to be this challenging for me personally. Because since then, there, there's been... There's been a lot of difficult stuff that I've been dealing with, that Jennifer's been dealing with, difficult people, 
that we've been crossing paths with. And, and here is the conclusion that I have reached. I don't do this very well. I don't model this very well. It's a lot easier for me to take that path of confrontation and prove that I'm right, which by the way, I am usually right. <laughs> I just need to learn that I don't always have to show everybody that. Or sometimes that easier path is to just ignore and move on, life's too short. And if you know me well, I'm sure that you can think of a lot of examples recently and over the course of my life where I have wholly and completely failed at doing what we're talking about today. But I hope that that doesn't cause you to tune me out and say, hey, here's another hypocrite who's talking about things that he's not living out. And instead, just know that I want to do this better. And I want all of us to do this better because of the eternal impact that it can have if we do it right. So let's get a couple things out of the way. Love your enemies. What did Jesus mean by love? What did he mean by enemies? We way overcomplicate this. We overthink it. So let's start with enemies. Who are you thinking of right now when I say who is your enemy? You do not have to announce it out loud. It could be a specific individual or a group of individuals. It could be a group of people. It could be whatever political party you consider to be opposite to you. And some people in this room are thinking Republicans and some are thinking Democrats. It could be some other nation. Don't overcomplicate this with some rationalization or justification that we introduce into this situation, such as, well, that group deserves justice because they are acting against God, and it's, it's my duty and it's my responsibility as a Christian to be adverse to them. Look at Matthew 5. He gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and unjust alike. Luke chapter 6, those who hate you, those who curse you, those who hurt you, Jesus was talking about anyone and everyone when he gave this command. His audience at the time were people that were dealing with the Pharisees, who were fighting the early Christians and the disciples and Jesus at every move with everything within their power. The Romans who employed torture and murder in order to keep people in line and accomplish the things that they want. These people Jesus was talking to understood, I hate you with every ounce of my guts type of enemies. Jesus himself washed Judas's feet just a few hours before Judas betrayed him. So we don't get to exclude anybody from this with some rationalization or justification that we can come up with. Whoever and whatever popped into your mind when I asked that question, that's exactly who Jesus is talking about. Love, same thing. We messed this one up too. Don't overthink it. Don't over-rationalize it with things like, well, I love them, but I don't have to like them. Or they deserve tough love. Or love doesn't mean I have to help in this particular situation. See, I can come up with these over and over again because I do it all the time. There's three types of love, words for love that are in Scripture. One is fraternal or friendly love. That is not the word that Jesus used in this situation. A second is romantic love. That is also not the word that Jesus used in this particular command. The original word was agape, third type of love, and it means 
an unlimited benevolence, an unlimited goodwill. So Jesus was saying to agape our enemies, treat them with unreasonable, unlimited goodwill and benevolence no matter what they have done to you. Look at Luke chapter 6. Turn the other cheek. Give your shirt also. Loan them money and don't expect to be repaid. This is a type of love that is absolutely unreasonable by all rational and earthly standards, but it's what Jesus commands of us. So stop rationalizing it. Stop justifying our points of view and what we would prefer and wish that Jesus said because it's contrary to what he actually said. We know who our enemies are and we know what he meant by love. The question that I've been asking as I've been working through this is not so much what he meant, but why did he give us this command when it's so difficult to do? So there's a Canadian pastor who visited Lebanon, not our Canadian pastor, different Canadian pastor. I don't know, you might have been to Lebanon, but this story is not about our Canadian pastor. So this Canadian pastor came back and, and wrote about and talked about how for the first time he understood this conflict between the people of Lebanon and the people of Syria and how deep it went. And they had this common shared history hundreds of years earlier that this conflict came from and many, many wars over many, many years created this tension and this hatred that these people had for each other. They consider the, each other enemies. And, and it's an enemy feeling that goes much deeper than most things that we can imagine. And so this, this Canadian pastor encountered these Lebanese people, such as a Lebanese Christian pastor whose father had been killed by the Syrians. And a Lebanese woman who had stood at gunpoint before the Syrians holding her baby and praying that God would take her and save her child. And a church leader in Lebanon who, who recalled the time when his entire town was under siege by the Syrians for 100 days with no food and no medical supplies getting in. Story after story of pain and loss and grief that created this hatred that these people have for each other. But then within the last few years, with what's going on within Syria itself, as these people are fleeing and looking for new homes, these people of Lebanon and the Christians in Lebanon have been faced with a choice. Are we going to hate these people that have been our enemy as long as we and all of our ancestors have known and treat them with what they probably deserve based on what they've done to us? Or are we going to actually carry out what Jesus told us to do and love our enemies? So that pastor whose father was killed by the Syrians, he has a church 
that decided to start reaching out to these Syrian refugees and these Syrian families. And one day he invited one of the Syrian individuals down to the front of the church and he washed that person's feet so that he could demonstrate to his congregation what it means to love and forgive. And that church that he pastors has now grown from 60 people to 900 people, two-thirds of which are people that have flooded into Lebanon from Syria. The woman who prayed at gunpoint for God to take her and save her child, she's now part of a church that cares for 500 displaced Syrian families. She has her own group of families that she visits, and she oversees a ministry that, over, that visits with hundreds of other Syrian families. Every week she has tea with her enemies, except that those enemies are now her friends and her partners in accomplishing the things of God. She told this Canadian pastor who was visiting that learning to love her enemies was the greatest challenge she had ever faced in this journey of faith that she's on. But it has also been the most rewarding and has brought about the greatest blessing. That town that was under siege for 100 days now cares for 2,000 Syrian families. The church started out hoping to care for 100, but the need just kept growing and growing and growing, and they kept giving. Now they give out 1,400 food hampers every month. They provide diapers, job training, social support for these people that their whole lives they viewed as their enemy. So when this happens, hearts are changed, transformation occurs, restoration occurs, and the things of God occur. So I think there's a couple of answers to that question of why did Jesus command us to do this? The first is God loves absolutely everyone. He has not given up on them, and he expects us to do the same. We saw it in the scriptures that we read earlier. There's evidence of it all throughout scripture. Romans 5, 8, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Who was the greatest enemy of the early Christian church? Saul, who became Paul. God did not give up on him, and look how God used him for the rest of his life. What if Ananias had not followed this command to love his enemies when Paul showed up on his doorstep blind and broken? The Father God's love is a love without end for everyone, including our enemies. None of us are excluded from that, and we don't have the right to exclude anybody else from it. And the second reason is because when you do this, the kingdom of God things start happening. Chains are broken. Hearts are changed. Lives are altered. When love intervenes, this true enemy-loving type of love, then heaven on earth happens. God's purposes are carried out, as we see from those examples of these Lebanese Christians loving their enemies. So why are we against so much? Instead of being for the things that Jesus came for and lived for and died for and rose for, the things that we spend our time in this world fighting against, politics, other lifestyles, perceived wrongs, 
Those who act differently or think differently or look differently or worship differently or don't worship at all. We spend our time and energy fighting against all this and we say that we're doing it because of our faith and we get indignant at other people's behavior. But aren't they acting exactly as they should act when they don't know Jesus? Really, it's our response that is out of line if that response is anything other than love. But if we respond in love, then we help achieve those things that Jesus actually came to live for and fight for and die for and rise for, things such as hope and joy and peace. And when our enemies see that kind of love from us and they experience it, then amazing, eternity-impacting things start happening. See, our love for them, despite what they have done, may very well be the one thing that brings about the transformation and the restoration and the revelation that they need to see and understand what the Father's love for them really is. And then that's when the things that Jesus came for become real and not just things that we talk about. This is not easy. It's hard, I don't like it, and I'd rather not do it. But that's why doing this can be so impactful, and that's why Jesus told us to do it. See, G.K. Chesterton, he was an English poet and author in the early 1900s. He said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. And that's what we do. This is too hard, so it can't really be what's expected to us. But the reality is that because it's so hard is what makes it so worth doing. This mess that we live in and this stuff that's going on around us, it may be that loving our enemies is the only real solution and resolution for it. The only way that those things that Jesus came for are actually gonna be present here and now. So these people, these enemies, they are humans created by God in the image of God. And if you're dealing with humans, then there is hope. Hope that messages of love and acceptance and peace can be heard. Hope that God can redeem even the worst of sinners, just as he did for me, just as he did for Paul, just as he did for all of you, and just as he can do for whatever individual or group of people came into your mind earlier when we asked that question of who is your enemy. So Bob Goff, he is a lawyer out on the West Coast. He's also an author of a couple of books. He's a missionary. He is a U.S. consulate to Uganda. He wrote a book several years ago called Love Does, and he's got a new book out called Everybody Always, Becoming Love in a World Full of Setbacks and Difficult People. I haven't read all of it, I've started it, but he's got some amazing things to say about this topic. He says that he's a lawyer, and he says, I win arguments for a living, but I don't need to be Jesus' lawyer. He said to follow me, not represent me. 
Bob said, do I want to be right or do I want to be Jesus? And then this is one that really struck me. He said, if you want a report card for how you're doing in your faith, then look at how you are dealing with and treating those in your life who are the most difficult to deal with and who you disagree with the most. Bob tells this story about some of his early days and work in Uganda. And he encountered witch doctors who were literally sacrificing children for the things that they believed. And part of Bob's early work and responsibilities included prosecuting these witch doctors, which is certainly just, certainly justified, certainly reasonable. But Bob said as he started really thinking about it and started looking at himself and what he was doing and started thinking about this command to love our enemies, then he decided he shouldn't be prosecuting these witch doctors. So he started sitting down with them one-on-one -on -one and meeting with them and asking questions about how they got to where they are and, and what their understanding was and seeking to understand them. And, and what he learned from that as their biggest need was that they didn't know how to read or write. So Bob decided instead of prosecuting these witch doctors, he opened a witch doctor school. And he said that in this school, they had two books. One was the Holy Bible, and one was Love Does by Bob Goff. <laughs> and he said the transformation that he saw in these people when they encountered Jesus for the first time was life-changing and life-altering. When they received this kind of love from someone that Jesus commanded and that Jesus was talking about. See, to do this, we have to do what's unexpected. It's probably the opposite of what every fiber in your being tells you as to how to handle a situation. It's the opposite of any kind of advice you're gonna get from just about anybody when you ask how to deal with these difficult situations. It's intimidating and it's uncomfortable, but it's what's required. It is a love without fear, without insecurity, without restriction, without distinction, without limits, without whatever rationalization and justification we want to put on it. I'm going to ask our altar ministry team to come forward as we wrap up. See, Jesus told us how we are going to be identified with him, how we are going to be identified as Christ followers. And it's not by representing him in these things that we fight against. But in John 13, 35, he said, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So why do we have to do this? Why did Jesus command us to do this? Because that's how much the Father in heaven loves our enemies. And because when we do that, when we follow this command, then transformation happens and restoration happens and hearts are changed and lives are altered. And instead of fighting against everything, then the things that Jesus truly came for, hope and peace and love and joy, then those things become a reality.
So when this happens, when this transformation occurs, we may just find that those enemies are suddenly our partners in building the things of the kingdom of God and bringing heaven to earth in the here and now. Happy Father's Day to everyone. May we go out this week and love the world and everyone in it the way that our Father loves us.